Now, last week we began a study on a biblical response to homosexuality. And we did that not in an effort to engage in what is commonly called gay bashing, but instead to equip the church, to equip God's people so that they can offer an uncompromised but compassionate response to those who are engaged in what is just one out of many forms of human sin and human brokenness. If you were not with us for the first week in this series, please access it online or however you want to do that because I laid out a framework for our discussion. And if you aren't familiar with the points I made there, you may be inclined to misinterpret some of the things that I will offer in our teaching today. As we launched this discussion last weekend, we read Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, as our text for launching rather than a text for study. And we're going to read it each week as we begin this four-part series because while it's very simple, very straightforward, it reminds us where our orientation is to be. Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, and that includes your sexuality, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We've entitled this series, Oriented to Jesus, and today we're going to consider part two of this four-part study. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need to know truth in all arenas of life, including human sexuality. Today I pray that you would set a watch upon my lips so that I would not speak one thing that doesn't align perfectly with your revealed truth, with your inspired scriptures. And by your Holy Spirit, empower me to preach and teach your truth faithfully. And empower each of us to not only hear your word, but to allow your word to transform our thinking, transform our attitudes, transform our responses to what is taking place in the world, transform our hearts. Father, if we hear your word and go away unchanged, we've missed the point of the exercise entirely. And so today, help us to grow in grace and in our knowledge of you. And as always, we pray all of these things with confidence because we pray them in the name of Christ. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. I want to begin today with a statement about interpreting Scripture. And here it is. If we approach God's Word seeking an echo of our own beliefs, we'll likely walk away having encountered ourselves rather than encountering God. Let me say it again. If we approach God's Word seeking an echo of our own beliefs, we'll likely walk away having encountered ourselves rather than God. And the whole point of coming to God's Word is to encounter God, not to encounter yourself. Because there's only one person in the universe who will give you absolute truth about yourself, and that's God. God won't spin the truth. God won't withhold a portion of the truth. 
And you need him to tell you the truth about who you are because the human heart, according to Scripture, is deceptive. And we not only seek to deceive others, but we always deceive ourselves. We always concoct this image of who we like to be or who we think we are, and we need an all-knowing God to tell us who we really are and to speak truth to us. So when we come to the Scriptures, we need to encounter God, and then we'll know more about ourselves. Last week, I suggested that the debate about homosexuality is far more than a debate about one area of sexual conduct. I said it ultimately is a debate about the authority of Scripture and about the interpretation of Scripture. Those are the big issues behind the surface issue. Now, where the interpretation of Scripture is concerned, in our day, we are seeing a growing number of scholars who I would say are forcing the Scriptures to do their will. You remember Jesus once prayed, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Well, these scholars are in essence saying to God, not thy will, but mine be done. They come to the Scriptures with an agenda. And they claim that the passages traditionally interpreted as condemning or censoring homosexual conduct have been misunderstood and misinterpreted, and they really aren't relevant to our contemporary moral debate. Now, they contend that Scripture nowhere teaches that homosexual behavior is intrinsically and therefore always immoral or evil. They do admit, because they have to, the text is clear. They do admit that every biblical text referring to homosexual conduct condemns it, and that Scripture is uniform in that condemnation. But, they would suggest to us, in each case there is something else to be considered. There's something else in play. There's something about the conduct or the context of that homosexuality and that that's what God is condemning, a particular expression of it rather than homosexuality itself. For example, they would say in the story of Abraham, Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah, God wasn't condemning all homosexuality. He was condemning attempted gang rape. In Leviticus, they would say he wasn't condemning all homosexuality. He was condemning idolatry and ritual defilement. In the New Testament, they would say he is not condemning all homosexuality. He is condemning homosexual promiscuity or homosexual temple prostitution or something that was very common in Paul's day, something called pederasty. Now, that's a word that I imagine you didn't use this past week. But pederasty refers to sexual intimacy between an adult male and a pre-adolescent boy. And so their argument is, it's not homosexuality that God condemns, but homosexual conduct that is abusive or exploitive or uncommitted or tied in with idolatry or destructive. So for them, bottom line is, homosexuality is just like heterosexuality. Heterosexuality is appropriate when it is expressed 
within the confines of a committed marital relationship when it conforms to God's design and God's decree. And they would say homosexual conduct is also appropriate when it conforms excuse me, to God's design and God's decree. So that God is not condemning all homosexual conduct, but just that which is abusive, exploitive, and so on. Now that leads us as believers to this one central question in the debate. Does the Bible teach that homosexuality is intrinsically and therefore always immoral? Or, as is the case with heterosexuality, do other factors determine whether it's right or wrong? And the key text in this debate is found in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Because Romans, <coughs> excuse me, 24 through 27 clearly affirms the intrinsic moral evil of homosexual conduct. Now I want to emphasize again homosexual conduct. As I said last week, the presence of a homoerotic impulse inclination is not in and of itself sin. It constitutes temptation. It only becomes sin if a person acts upon it. This past week, several of you emailed me with a question in light of that. You said, Pastor Rock, you said that the inclination or the impulse isn't a sin. It only becomes a sin if we act upon it. Well, then why did Jesus say, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart, he has committed adultery already? Now, that was a, a, an appropriate question. That was a good question. And I answered both of those folks, and here's how I answered them. Jesus didn't say, if a man has an inappropriate thought about a woman, he has committed adultery right there. If that is what Jesus said, then I am speaking to a room full of adulterers. Amen? Amen? I remember I asked my father when he was 86, Dad, when do inappropriate sexual thoughts quit coming to your mind? He said, I don't know, but it's sometime after 86. When Jesus said, if a man lusts, that was a very strong word. What he was saying is, if a man has an inappropriate thought about a woman other than his wife, and he takes that thought in, he welcomes it, and he nurtures it, and he embellishes it, and he feeds it, and he focuses on it, and he starts imagining it, and he enjoys his time with it. Jesus said he's already well on his way to committing adultery. But the mere presence of a thought does not constitute sin. Martin Luther said this about inappropriate thoughts. He said inappropriate thoughts are like the birds of the air. You cannot keep them from flying over your head. But you can refuse to allow them to build a nest in your hair and lay their eggs and hatch them. So, it's homosexual conduct that I believe Paul makes very clear receives the condemnation of God no matter the context. Now, let's read the passage 
that is so critical in this debate. I'm going to have it projected for you, or you can follow along in your own Bible. And I've taken the liberty of highlighting some of the words that I think are very critical in this discussion. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Here's an important word. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. See, even in the midst of this serious topic, Paul just had to go off and praise God. Because of this, Paul said, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, it's important when you're unpacking a text that you consider its context. Because as I've said before, if you ignore the context, you're probably going to get conned. You're going to end up with a bad interpretation. So what's the context for Paul's words here? Well, if you're familiar with his letter to the Romans, you know that he takes the first chapter and the second chapter to prove conclusively that all humanity needs restoration, forgiveness, grace, and the new birth through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that by the time he reaches chapter 3, he says, so there is none righteous, no, not one. Everybody stands guilty before God and needs the grace that is found in Jesus. And so he is talking about fallen humanity's condition and the inevitable results or the fruit of fallen humanity's broken condition. And one of many forms of behavior that he describes as an inevitable consequence of unbelief and brokenness is increased homosexuality. Paul saw that as evidence of and the inevitable result of human beings acting in rebellion against God, their creator. And Paul's message is clear. When cultures and peoples rebel against the creator, they abandoned they abandon the created norm. When they rebel against the Creator, they abandon the created norm. It was once in their grasp, but they willfully let it go. Now we read that in that word that he uses, they exchanged the truth for a lie. So to put it differently, the exchange of natural sexual relations for unnatural ones is the inevitable effect of having exchanged the worship of the true God for idolatry. When you exchange the worship of God for the worship of anything else, you also exchange natural sexual expression for that which is unnatural. You see, when you're interpreting God's Word, you need to allow it to create within you a very 
uniform, consistent, and thorough biblical worldview. You need to allow God's Spirit to develop a pair of lenses through which you can interpret Scripture and all of life. Too many times believers settle for a little bag full of comfort verses and a few behavioral verses, and they never really learn the full scope of Scripture so that they can walk through this world with discernment. If I could just pause for a moment... I have some concerns about some of, not all, some of our contemporary worship music because I find it moving away from good theology and understanding of Scripture to a purely emotional expression, what somebody has called Jesus is my boyfriend music, where People gather together and in their worship, they just talk about loving God and His embrace and, and so on. And all of that is fine, but not if there is an absence of clear theology in our worship. Now, I haven't been around too long, but I've been around long enough to have grown up when we sang hymns. And, and we needed to add expression of personal intimacy with God to our hymns. But when we sang those hymns, we sang theology. And, and we learned about the lostness of man and the centrality of Christ and the power of the gospel and the second coming and healing and the filling of the Holy Spirit and so on. We did more than say Jesus is my dad and he loves me and I love him. And we need that kind of theology. I remember a cartoon strip once in which Charlie Brown and Lucy are walking in a pour-down rain. And Charlie says to Lucy, you know, I'm getting frightened because it's been raining like this for three days and there's no end in sight. And didn't God once destroy the earth through water and a flood? And Lucy says, yes, he did, but you don't need to worry about that. He said, why not? She said, well, God promised that he would never do that again, and he gave the rainbow as a symbol of that. And Charlie says to her, that makes me feel much better. Thank you. And in the last frame, she says, good theology will do that. Good understanding of God's Word will help you to interpret what's going on in the world in light of what God's doing in the world. We need more than a few comfort verses and Jesus loves me. Now that's additional. That's just a little commercial. Let's go on. So let me put it this way in light of our last point. At the heart of increasing homosexuality, there is a worship disorder. Ultimately, increased homosexuality is indicative of a worship disorder, as is increased corruption, Increased violence, increased greed, increased dishonesty, those are all at their core worship disorders. Because when you shift worship away from God to anything else, everything else breaks down. Now hear me, Paul isn't saying that every person who has homoerotic impulses does so because they have turned away from God. No, that's not what he's saying. There are many followers of Jesus who from their earliest recollection have had homoerotic impulses. 
and they govern them by their beliefs, and they live by their beliefs and their relationship to Jesus rather than those impulses. But they don't have the impulses because they've rejected Jesus. No. What Paul is talking about is societal level. He is saying when a culture, when a society, when a people group turn away from God, inevitably everything in that culture breaks down and sexuality breaks down. And one form of sexual breakdown is increased homosexuality. So Romans 1 makes it very clear that increased homosexual conduct doesn't indicate that that conduct is normal. It indicates increased unbelief. All right? Increased homosexuality doesn't mean it's normal. It means unbelief has increased. You see, sin, this is so simple. Sin doesn't become right simply because a lot of people engage in it. Okay? Right is right if no one engages in it. And wrong is wrong even if everybody is engaging in it. A lie doesn't become truth because you tell it often enough. Evil doesn't become righteousness because you practice it often enough. Increased homosexuality is indicative of increased unbelief. Look, in Nazi Germany, hatred for Jewish people increased. That didn't make Jewish hatred normal. Nobody would suggest looking back, well, the fact that so many hundreds of thousands and millions of German people hated the Jews would indicate there must be something right about hating Jews. No, it's indicative there was something horribly wrong at the top of that nation. Now, some revisionists, knowing this text and knowing they need to interpret it, suggest that Paul isn't here talking to homosexuals. He's talking to heterosexuals who for some reason have stopped engaging in heterosexual behavior and who have begun to engage in homoerotic behavior. That when he says they've left the natural expression, he's saying people who are heterosexual, when they begin to conduct themselves as homosexuals, they're leaving their natural inclination. Is that what Paul's saying? I don't believe so. Three reasons. Number one, that wasn't a big issue in the first century. You didn't have scads of heterosexuals saying, well, I'm going to engage in homosexual behavior. But secondly, when Paul describes those who engage in the homosexual acts, men with men, he said they did it because they were consumed with passion and inflamed with lust for other men. And friends, by any definition, that's homosexuality, not heterosexuality. A heterosexual-oriented person is not inflamed with lust for the same sex. So again, the words themselves in the clearest and most obvious definition are making it clear what Paul's talking about. And third, the phrase unnatural, as it was used by Roman moralists, Greek moralists, Hellenistic Jews, and the apostles, always indicates something contrary to the natural created order. 
The word was never used to say something contrary to your personal inclination. It was always used to talk about that which is contrary to the moral created order of God. So this is not addressing heterosexuals who engage in homosexual behavior, please. Others argue that what Paul is denouncing here is pederasty because it was so prominent in Paul's day. And it was a tragic thing. An adult male, a pre-adolescent boy. And one of the reasons it was doubly tragic is because generally those pre-adolescent boys were the unwilling victims and they were slaves and they were told they had to do this or they would die. And so it was a relationship that was intrinsically exploitive, degrading, temporary, abusive, and unequal. And that's where the argument comes that if that's what Paul was condemning, that has nothing to do with two consenting adults in a monogamous homosexual partnership today. So what do we say to that? Well, while Paul likely had pederasty on his mind because it was so prevalent, do you notice what he condemns in the passage? He doesn't say God condemns man with boy. He could have easily have said that. He says, man with man, and then to make his point doubly clear, he says, woman with woman. Now, that's powerful. It's the only reference to lesbianism in the scriptures. You see, the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, they hardly ever wrote about lesbianism. They hardly even mention it. It hardly ever came up in conversation. So for Paul, in this great treatise of the fallen of humanity, to talk about lesbianism, everybody would have said, whoa, where's that coming from? Nobody writes about that. But Paul did. Because he was making it clear the thing God condemns, the thing that results from unbelief in a culture, is not a man using a pre-adolescent boy, but men with men, adult, women with women, adult, consenting, doing that which is unnatural. Why? Because God has given them over to a lie. Notice, God doesn't make us believe a lie. But when we tell God, I don't want your truth, I want my lies, God says, then have your lies. I'll give you over to them. I've been fighting you so that you don't believe those lies. But if you want those lies, run with them, baby. Go with them. Take, let go wherever they take you. You want your lie instead of my truth? So be it. Here's your lie. And I won't interfere with you anymore. That is a frightening place for a culture to be when God gives them over. And you see, when God gives a culture over to lies, the truth no longer makes sense. The truth in a culture that has been given over to lies, the truth is preposterous. The truth is scandalous. Scandalous. And that's where we are, I believe, in the United States of America. So any fair reading of the text makes it clear homosexual conduct is intrinsically immoral irrespective of social context, personal motivation, or any other factors. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor, this just doesn't sound right. 
in light of everything we're hearing in our culture. This seems so countercultural. And to that, I would simply offer a couple of things in closing. First of all, I believe that we have forgotten something important. We have forgotten that God is not just a human being written in capital letters. God is not just a human being who has reached his full potential. God is wholly other than us. There's only one God, and he is not like us. He is wholly other. He is different. You can try to grasp who he is through human analogies, but they all fall short at some point because God is wholly other. And if God is wholly other, then doesn't it stand to reason that his word would be wholly other than the lies spewed by a self-serving, self-infatuated, spiritually corrupt culture? Duh! God's Word should always confront broken humanity. It should always confound our assumptions. It should always convict us of the error of our ways because His ways are not our ways. His ways are beyond our understanding. Who can search out the mind of God? Who knows the heart of God? God is other. His Word is other. And so God's Word should always make us sit up and go, whoa, whoa. Annie Dillard, a well-known Pittsburgh writer, wrote, wrote a book about growing up in Pittsburgh, and she went to a fairly liberal church. And she said, they used to teach us the Bible in Sunday school, and I found myself wondering why. Because she said, I, I said of my Sunday school teacher, has she ever really read this book? Because said my Sunday school teacher was best known for her jewelry, her wardrobe, and her carefully manicured, manicured tan that she worked on at the local country club. And here's this woman handing me this book where Jesus says stuff like, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And she's telling me, I need to memorize this. And so she said, I wondered, have they even read this book? It is scandalous. And then I'll never forget her line. She says, what they did was they asked us to commit huge chunks of it to memory and then ignore it entirely. Every believer has the right to interpret Scripture, but every believer has the responsibility to get it right. To get it right. Paul said to Timothy, a spirit-filled pastor that he had personally mentored, he said, Timothy, you work very hard at interpreting God's Word, lest someday you be ashamed. You just can't come to God's Word and make it say whatever you want it to say. Let God be God and let everybody else be a liar. And finally, when interpreting God's Word, two final thoughts I leave with you. First, Scripture wasn't given to make Jesus like us, but to make us like Jesus. We've got too many people trying to conform Jesus to 21st century American culture. And in so doing, they're giving away thousands of years 
a biblical interpretation with the suggestion that at the beginning of the 21st century, now the generation that's given us keeping up with the Kardashians finally understands what God really means, please. See, the Apostle Paul didn't have an iPad, but he had the Holy Spirit. Moses couldn't get online, but he had the Holy Spirit. The thought that people a thousand years ago know less about truth than we do today because we've got some technology whereby we can share our ignorance is preposterous. Okay. Oh, people say, we know too much today to believe that. What do you know? Tell me what you know. What do you know? What are you talking about? Facebook? I don't feel like going to work today. I'm going to lunch. Just had a sandwich. Somebody a thousand years ago filled with the Holy Spirit knew how to interpret the word accurately. They may not have known about landing on the moon, but they knew about landing where Jesus wanted them to land. Remember, the closer we get to the end, the Bible says, the less they will endure sound doctrine and the more they will drift towards error. So if any century has less to commend itself in the interpretation of God's word, it is the 21st century. God made us in his image, but he didn't ask us to return the favor. He didn't ask us to remake him in our image. We're not called to distort scripture so that God gains the approval of 21st century humanity. We're called to declare the scripture to 21st century humanity so that perchance by grace, they might gain the approval of God. I'm not concerned about you approving of God. I'm concerned about God approving me in the judgment. Somebody said, Pastor, you're bold to preach on this topic. I don't consider it boldness at all. Man would have to be a fool to not preach the Word of God. Preaching the Word of God is common sense, not boldness. And the final thought, I wish we had another hour. When we reduce God's Word to fit our desires, we reduce our own souls. And we close the doors to hope and healing. And we reduce the opportunity for broken people to come to the one who is able to take all things and make them new. Yeah, we need the church to be radical in these days, but radical with grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, we need to get it right. Lots of people need us to get it right. Let judgment begin with the household of God so that we can go out with uncompromised truth and compassion and help captives to find liberty in Jesus and to be oriented not to anything in way of sexual impulse or anything else, but to be oriented to Jesus. We pray these things in his great name. Amen and amen.